did you see licorice pizza i did did I, you like it i did but am I, I gonna like it i don't know i'm very <laughs> i'm very worried about this movie Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. Words are hard sometimes. (laughs) I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, library manager, and uh, I don't know, I've been moving for too long to come up with a clever nickname for myself, so I'm just going to pass it over to my other co-host. I'm Pete Romberg, curriculum developer and under the weather. Super cool. Oh no! Yeah, but you have you have definitively ruled out the Rona, correct? I keep testing negative, so you know. And I I should say like I haven't tested in a few days, but I started feeling sick on Thursday. Got a PCR test on Friday when I was definitely sick. Um, got negative results, so I don't know. Doesn't it feel? Doesn't it feel really rude it for them? It feels to so be... stupid. Yes, I am like, first off, I'm very glad that I don't have COVID. And second, I am yes. offended that I am sick right now with something that's not yes. COVID. <laughs> yes, that is how I felt. I got really sick back in September. And same deal for me. Like I did, I tested negative several times and I just was flat on my butt with like a run of the mill flu. And I was like, why is this allowed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um but I'm glad that you are well enough to be recording with us today. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm, I've been working at, you know, 85, 90% for the past couple days. Uh, it's just the days are fine. And then I sleep badly at night because of post nasal drips and coughing and stuff. So super fun. Well, I've got that without being sick because as I said, I'm moving, kicking up every bit of dust that has ever, uh, accumulated in my house. Yep. Is making it real hard for me to uh, control my <laughs> to breathe. Just... Yeah, having allergies is my superpower, so I <laughs> am not true. I'm not super loving this whole deal. Yeah, but we are not here today to talk about illness or allergies or what have you. We are here today to talk about portrayals of faith in popular culture. But before that. We're here to talk about what's stuck in our heads this week. This is the piece of pop culture or media that we have consumed or interacted with in the last two weeks that we cannot stop thinking about. Pete, what is stuck in your head today? So I feel like for the past couple episodes, I've been really scraping the bottom of the barrel to figure out what's stuck in my head. It's like I haven't really been consuming a lot of new, interesting media. Uh, This week is the opposite. I have an absolute surfeit of uh media that i could be talking about i'm gonna limit myself to two and i'm gonna go real quick on them uh the first is i recently finished a reread of mouse the art spiegelman uh holocaust graphic novel that you know people have been reading recently for because it's been in the news and stuff um i haven't read this book in about eight ten years now Uh, ten years now um and uh it's incredible like first off i absolutely believe it should be assigned to students to read, uh, especially in a controlled <clears throat> classroom environment. Uh, but also, uh, everyone should just read it or reread it themselves. It's it's incredible. Uh, this time around, what struck me wasn't the Holocaust bit, 
but that definitely did strike me. Um, but the the quote unquote modern day parts, uh, Art Spiegelman interacting with his father Vladik, um, really, really sort of difficult stuff there. That I I think it's it's useful for students to engage with that as well, like not just the Holocaust side of it, but then the the interpersonal modern dynamics side of it. Um, looking at survivors and realizing that like some of the things that mess you up as people wasn't like what was just sort of always there like they sort of come around a few times to like Vladik it wasn't the camps that made Vladik who he was although maybe they accentuated some aspects of his personality um so all all just really interesting stuff uh yeah Mouse is obviously a classic for a reason um the other thing that stuck in my head I saw the Batman it was really good. I enjoyed it. It's too long, uh, but it's it would probably be in my top three Batmans, except for I don't know which one it would bump. Uh, if you want to know more about what my top three Batmans might be, go ahead and listen to our last episode, which was all about the Batsman. Uh, Martha, what is stuck in your head? Well, first, just a real quick comment on Mouse. Uh, my director's response to all of the stuff about it being banned and everything was how can we capitalize on this? Yep, good, good. So I am leading uh, two community book discussions about it in April, one for adults and one for teens. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be fun. Have, have um, you read it recently? Not recently. Mm -hmm. I will before the discussion. Um, like you, even but... knowing, even having read it like two or three times and knowing what was coming, it's still, it's still, you know, a gut punch, so... No, mostly I'm just not super looking forward to the adult one because if our community has anybody in it that feels that this book should be banned, guess where they're going to come and want to talk about how it's inappropriate. And I just don't want to deal with that right now, selfishly. Yeah, um, yeah. This hosting this program, which I, again, am doing by my director's request, feels a little bit like chumming the waters in a way that I don't know was fully necessary, but we'll see. And it's <laughs> we'll like, see it, how it, goes. it puts you in a tough place because you're supposed to be like leading and moderating a discussion, not like giving a full throated defense of a work, but that might be a position you're quasi placed in, but not yes. one you should necessarily take, but also have to take. Yeah, that's. Well, <laughs> yeah. And. There's also, because there's this perception that libraries are neutral, which they're not. We shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. We should absolutely be taking a stand against stuff like book banning and all of that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there won't be room, I feel like there won't be room for me to express how I feel right. about it and it being in libraries. And I'm just... The, the tension of you as the professional and you as the, the individual. Yeah. Yeah. And like, how much freedom will I have to disagree with somebody who stands up and says, I think this book should be banned. Right. Um, so, like I said, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not excited about it. That, um, that does feel like something that you should like, get you and your director should get on the same wavelength of like, if this happens, what is our like? Well, I know she is vehemently anti anything that even stinks, like anything that even smells like censorship. Like when the um, when the Dr. Seuss <clears throat> thing came up, she got real up in arms about these places that are banning Dr. Seuss. And it's like, well, that's not what's happening. Um, yeah, yeah. But so I, I think she would be 
supportive of me just reinforcing the fact that like it's not a library's job to decide who reads what it is our job to provide access to the things that people want to read mm-hmm. right. um so i i'm not really concerned about her reaction i'm more concerned about the like if if i have somebody who comes to the discussion who is in that position what will their reaction be to me saying this book has a place on our shelf yeah yeah um and i just don't love being put in sort of a defensive position especially like professionally especially one that you have to think about like for a month in advance yes (laughs) exactly because this is not causing me any anxiety at all. <laughs> yes, yes, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, what's stuck in um, your head, at least? Uh, my my last comment about yours mm. is just that three hours is too long. Uh, three hours is too long, and like the Batman moves, uh, I it's it's um episodic in a way, which is nice, but uh, too long. Look, I'm gonna watch it. Let's just I I will. I, I I'm will not say, gonna go to the theater because I'm not there yet. It's but. it's beautiful, and the cinematography is done by a guy named uh, Greg Fraser. I could be mispronouncing that, um, but he also did the DP for Dune. I've never heard of this guy before, and he's gone and in the past six months produced two beautiful films. So he is like rocketed to the top of my like cinematographers to like be on the lookout for list. I am also giving you permission now to call me a hypocrite one numerical one time Uh because my stuck in my head this week is a movie called drive my car which is one of the best picture nominations uh this year it is directed by um ryusuke hamaguchi who also stars in it and it is also three hours long i did not i didn't know where you were going with that because i didn't realize drive my car was three hours long Three hours long. However, this movie is riveting. It was so good it made me angry. Like it made me mad. So I've been watching all the Best Picture nominees because I have an illness and also because I've been working on that limited YouTube series with friend of the podcast Dan Carlin. And after some of the stuff that I have find that uh, limited YouTube series? uh, You can find that on S-O-O-L Media on YouTube. Um, I believe our first episode is up and he's holding the rest of them to release one Every day until and culminating in our predictions episode, which will be released like the day before the Oscars. Nice. Um, so you can watch me right now talk all about the power of the dog. Um, but yeah, after some of the movies that I have watched that got nominated for Best Picture, watching this movie is like, how dare, <laughs> how dare they be in the same conversation as this? It is incredible. It is a very quiet little movie about um, a stage director whose wife suddenly passes away. And the bulk of the movie is about him, a couple of years later, directing a multilingual stage show of Uncle Vanya for a theater festival in Hiroshima. And like how that play kind of becomes a metaphor for him dealing with the grief over the loss of his wife. Um, and then also the relationship he develops with the young woman who is hired by the theater company to drive him to and from rehearsals. Hmm. Um, it is based off of a short story by Haruki. Mur- Murakami. Yes. 
sorry, I said that and I was like, is that the correct name? Um, by Murakami. Um, I am not a huge fan of Murakami's writing, but if that's your jam, then check out the short story also. But mostly it's, it is a, it is an achievement of a movie. Mm. It is, it is a soap bubble of perfection. Um, yeah, I just, I kind of couldn't believe what I was watching, I guess. Wow. I don't know. And it's, and it's not like, like, it's about a dude. It's about a dude directing a play. So it's not like you're going to see huge special effects or anything, but just, I, I, I don't know. It, it spoke to me in a really, really deep resonant way. The, the, um, the way you're describing it makes it very obvious that it is stuck in your head, like that it's living rent-free in your head. Uh, truly. In, in like, the, the biggest way. <clears throat> one of the most fascinating things about it is the the show, so he's directing a show of Uncle Vanya, and all of his actors speak different languages. So they're all delivering their lines in, like, Mandarin or Japanese or Tagalog one of them speaks Korean sign language, and that's the language that they're speaking in the play as well. Hmm. So in, like, rehearsals, it comes up a couple times where they're like, I don't know what that person is saying. And he, as the director, is just like, just read your lines. Like, just read, just trust in the text and read your lines. And in- I don't know, it's... <laughs> Interesting. So, like, in order in order to even understand the play, you would have to be fluent in all the languages being being performed. He has a like a projection. It, it, the, he has the show basically subtitled. Okay, got it. Uh, I've been to the opera exactly one time, and they had a little subtitle thing. Yeah, uh, exactly yeah. like that. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, I, I I kind of I cannot recommend the movie highly enough. It is absolutely one of the best movies that came out last year um and oddly ended up being a really interesting pairing for one of the movies that we're about to talk about in this <laughs> I, episode when i do end up uh, seeing drive my car because it, it's a movie uh, i need to see the power of the dog that's my number one and then drive my car is my number two of the best pictures um i am really curious to hear uh, to, to talk to you about why you think it'd be a good double billing with um one of our two homeworks Yes, I, I want to talk to you about that very, very much. And we may get into it during our predictions episode. Yeah, we'll, totally. We'll... If you could do it in a non-spoilery way, because all I've seen the trailer for Drive My Car and know nothing else other than what you've said. So This uh... movie is, impo- I will say, this movie is impossible to spoil because Great. I've basically told you everything that happens and it's kind of doesn't matter. I'm also like, like loosey-goosey with spoilers as, as long as you're not like, and then in the third act, he kills someone with a hammer. I'd be like, well, no. hold on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, you know, barring something like that. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, since so much of the movie hinges on like your emotional reaction to things, it, it's hard for me to, like, I can't say like, and then this part will make you sad. So... Um, but yeah, I, that, that is, that yeah. is what is stuck in my, stuck in my head. Nice. All right. We are going to take a quick recess and when we come back, we are going to talk about depictions of faith in popular culture. 
And we are back. So today's episode, we are going to be looking at a couple of vastly different uh, (laughs) pieces of media that take a look at the question of faith in very different ways. And I am going to let Pete introduce our first topic of discussion. All right. uh, So my homework was the 2009 black comedy drama, A Serious Man, uh, written, produced, directed, edited, everything else uh, by Joel and Ethan Coen. Um, uh, Amusingly, I just also rewatched Fargo, and that is one where they didn't yet have the Joel and Ethan Coen director credit. Uh, They hadn't gotten that through the um, Directors Guild. Anyway, uh, so A Serious Man begins with a, a fable. Uh, set in 19th century Eastern Europe uh, about a dibok, a sort of undead uh, revenant-type creature. Um, And then we never return to that ever again. Uh, Instead, the movie is about Larry Gopnik, a math professor or physics professor, something to do with math, um, in the 1960s in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Uh, It's a Jobian story where he goes, his life basically is collapsing around him. Um, His wife is having an affair with uh, Cy Abelman, a a serious man, uh, sort of a, a powerhouse in the Jewish community. Um, she wants a get, which is a ritualistic divorce, which will allow her to marry Sai. Um, his son is uh, in in Hebrew school and is going to be going up for his bar mitzvah soon um, and is kind of a mess about. Um, uh, he smokes a lot of pot and owes money to people and listens to music on his it's not a Walkman because this predates Walkman, but his portable music player. Um, his daughter is constantly concerned with washing her hair. Uh, and his brother, who is clearly has something going on possibly on the spectrum, uh, as well as has a, a medical condition and lives with them, sleeps on the couch. Um, things devolve from there for Larry. Uh, he uh, goes to the synagogue multiple times to consult with uh, various rabbis, um, starting with the junior rabbi and trying to make his way up to the senior most rabbi uh, to just get advice in what to do with everything that's going on in his life. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. It's It's... It's it's a Jobian story, so he goes through many, many trials and tribulations. Things go downhill, 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 uh, until it seems like maybe at the end it'll all turn around. But then there is a last wrinkle in the last five minutes that sort of changes uh, changes the perspective sort of on everything. Um, I've seen this movie before. I remember deeply enjoying it, um, but I also haven't seen it in probably ten years. Uh... Martha, I think this was your first time watching it. Um, I guess before I go into what you thought about it, I should say that uh, I should go through the cast real quick. Uh, Larry is played by Michael Stuhlbarg. We also have Richard Kind, an amazing Fred Melamed as Cy Abelman. Um, and Sari uh, uh, Ser- Lennick uh, as his wife. Uh, and it is shot by Roger Deakins. Uh one of many, many uh, outings of, of Deacons and the Coens working together. Uh, music by Carter Burwell. Again, another uh, very common collaboration. Um, so, uh, with all of that out of the way, Martha, what did you think of it? Uh, so, the first thing that it is important for you to know is that until Michael Stuhlbarg showed up on my screen, I thought that this movie was a single man starring... Um, Colin Colin Firth. Firth. 
So uh, a movie I've never heard of until you texted me about that. <laughs> yes. So for a very long time until about, you know, three days ago, I thought these were the same movie. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was my first time watching this movie. I have sort of a hit. I have historically had sort of a hit or miss relationship with the Coen brothers. Um, but watching this movie kind of made me realize that the movies of theirs that I think of as movies that I don't like, I was probably just too young to mm. have watched them because mm. I don't think that this is a movie that I would have enjoyed as a teenager. I I think that it is kind of a movie you have to be a fully grown adult human to really appreciate. And I think that might be true of almost all the Coen brothers movies. I think that, Fargo and Oh Brother Where Art Thou are more accessible. They don't quite require, like... Lebowski requires almost no adulthood <laughs> to get behind. That's true, although I didn't see that one until I was an adult, so mm. I don't have a lot of... I, I, I can't disagree with you, but I also, like, can't right. provide that context. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, Good. I don't I don't know that your summary gives it enough credit necessarily. Okay. Um, so the, the fable of the Dybbuk at the beginning, like the whole deal of it is like this guy, the husband brings home this guy and is like, we need to feed this man soup. He helped me out. And his wife is like, that man died three years ago. I said shul for him. He's dead. <laughs> yeah. And then she stabs him with a pair of scissors, and he uh, kind of pick. looks at the wound. Oh, I thought it was scissors. Well, because she, she's breaking the ice in the first uh, half of the scene. Oh, yeah. So good. So she stabs him, and then he, like, laughs and makes a comment and then wanders out into the night, and you're sort of left wondering, like, is he going out there to die? Was she right? And her husband clearly thinks that she has just murdered him. Yeah. And she is just like, nope, God will provide. Got, got like, a dip book. Faith. Yep. My my faith guided me to that. I was acting in the name of God. I have done the correct thing. And I think the whole question of the movie is like, is Stool like is Larry acting in faith, or is he acting? Is he faking it till he makes it? Does it matter? Is he being punished for being a man of little faith? Is it simply that, like, like these are kind of the questions that the movie is grappling with, is, like, how much of a role does God actually play in his life? Well, but then, then going directly off that, I, I think of the, um, like, the, the story that Rabbi Nuckner tells him, which is, like, the story of the Goy's teeth, which is, like, my, my takeaway from that parable is, like, it doesn't matter if you have faith or not, it matters that you are acting in a good way, that you are, like, providing benefit for people, so... Well, and I think that that is what the movie kind of is leaning towards. Also, that story was so creepy and weird. I, I loved it a I, lot. I loved everything about it. <laughs> also, uh, so so my wife Marin hates this movie, and not surprised. Not not surprised. Even though it takes place in Saint Saint Louis Park, Minnesota. Uh, um, uh, but that scene crystallized for me why she hates it, which is that it's a story that sort of goes nowhere and has a very unsatisfying ending. Um, but I, I loved every minute of that scene. Yeah, it was great. Um, but yeah, so Larry has to has to kind of decide, and Larry never, I don't think Larry ever does decide in the movie whether 
okay, let me phrase this differently. Mm-hmm. I think we as the viewer want Larry to decide to be a good person and to act in faith because that is the right thing to do. And I think even to the end of the movie, Larry is still like, but, but what is that going to get for me? I, I think that it's, he's a complicated character because for much of the movie, he acts in a way that would be lauded if it weren't for the fact that it seems that he's acting that way because it's the path of least resistance. Yes. Like, putting up his, like, you know, having his, his brother on the on the couch and all the rest of it, like, that is a good and just and charitable act, except for he's doing it because, ugh, like, gotta do it. Um, you know, and... Also, and yeah. I also think that by the time he moves out into the motel, he does it so that he won't be alone. Mm. I I sort of thought he did it because it was like it was easier than than fighting his wife and and Zai like oh like for it, sure yeah and and so it's like he's doing all these things that are like that are laudable except for he's doing them for non laudable reasons um and then at the end when he finally like the end is finally like kind of a scene where like he grows a spine and does something and it is a bad thing that he does I was gonna um, say is he growing yeah. a spine or is he caving to is he once again <clears throat> taking the path of least resistance? So at the very end, mm. he has been he has been pressured the whole movie by a student of his who failed a, a midterm in his class and is a student from South Korea and will lose his visa and his scholarship if he fails this class. So he is subsequently bribed by the student and then threatened it's, by the student's father. It's a fun bribery slash blackmail combination. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> so at the end of the movie, he changes the student's grade. And I don't think that that is him being assertive. I think that is him continuing to take the path of least mm. resistance because changing that grade is what is going to get the student and the student's dad off his back. Why? Well, I, I think it's I like... So he he needs the money because that's going to pay for his brother's lawyer is the other side of it, too. Also true. Um, but again, like none of the like it. You're right that I think that is like. You're right, that's not him growing a spine, that is still him taking the path of least resistance. He's still paying for his brother's lawyer. He's ignoring yeah. like he's 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 pushing off this like the the bribery thing like getting the the guy off his back um him making the stand against his student is kind of the only moral act that he like that he has agency in enacting through yeah. the movie yeah um and we we should note that in the movie like throughout the movie he he is doing you know these he, he is acting in a laudable way for unlaudable reasons and while everything does go bad for him like Sai dies in a car crash while at the very same time he gets in a car crash and survives and um you know so so there it is sort of a sense of like god looking out for him until the end when he does take that bribery money instantly he gets a phone call from his doctor telling him he needs to come in and like talk about some x-rays that he had um <clears throat> it had very strong um let me look up the Marquis de Sade wrote a story about a pair of sisters that I did not think we are going to bring the Marquis de Sade into this episode. Very strong <laughs> energy. You keep talking and I'm going to find this story. Uh, I don't I, keep talking. I, I didn't have a, a, a strong out on that one. Um, one 
one interesting thing here, and I'm I'm a little bit on shaky ground here. Uh, I I'd like so we we are looking at a uh, a piece of of media created by um, two Jewish creators about like a, a very Jewish faith experience. Our next homework is going to be about an evangelical faith experience. Uh, Mar neither Martha nor I are Jewish or evangelical, so we are talking a little bit out of our our you know our zones here. Um, but I do know, or my understanding is that in Judaism, there's a lot less emphasis placed on, on, on faith in the same way that like Christianity and especially like Lutheranism places on faith. Um, it's, it's much more of a, like, whether you believe or you don't believe you do the rituals, you do the things you do, like you, you are part of the community. Um, and that, that is what matters. That is the mark of whether you know you're you're a good like you know member of the jewish community or not like the faith is part of it the faith matters but like the reason why like the way that the uh the two rabbis that talked to larry talk to him they're not talking to him about like god's love and they're not talking to him in terms of like you're having a crisis of faith they're talking about him in very real world terms uh, the junior rabbi is saying like you need to change your perspective on how you're viewing these things um, Rabbi Nachner is telling him the story of the Goy's teeth to be like, what matters is that you, it, what matters is how you act and how you move about in the world and in your community. Um, it, it doesn't really matter if God is like sending you signs or like, it doesn't matter if God is sending you these tribulations or not. What matters is how you respond to these tribulations. Um, and that's, that's a really interesting and like different sort of perspective because it's, it's not about god testing your faith per se it's about god testing how you react to trials and tribulations in terms of your society in terms of your community in terms of of your own self not in terms of whether you believe or disbelieve um which i i think is something we we might get into maybe with the righteous gemstones but maybe not um so just real quick, the story is called um, Justine or Good Conduct Will Chastised. Ah, that and... subtitle is the Desaad. Uh, <laughs> so it is about two sisters, Justine and Juliet, who travel to London, go their separate ways. Juliet um, becomes a prostitute, lures an old wealthy man into marriage, becomes a wealthy widow. Basically, like, is pretty aim like morally corrupt just taking care of herself like figuring out how to get what she wants her sister justine strives to live a life of morality and virtue um tries to join a convent gets hit on by the priest um is just tortured and abused every like everywhere she turns and then finally when she goes to her sister she finally like bows to it, goes to her sister for help, and as soon as she does, she is struck by lightning and killed. Hmm. So that was that was the very strong yep, that, is, that that's, was all I think of uh watching the end of this movie. That's like literally um, how this movie ends, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Like the moment <laughs> he changes that grade, God's like, nope. Yep. You messed up. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> um but no, the the feeling like I almost got a very um, not even a like God is watching and waiting for you to make these decisions. But for me, it was a very like God is not watching, and we have to do yeah. the best we 
can, um, like whether or not God exists, he's not watching and he's not taking care of you. So like, it's not really enough. It doesn't really hack it for you to say like, well, I didn't do anything or it's not my fault because you are the only one that gets to take an active role in your life. And I agree with you. I think that that is the message that the rabbis are trying to impart on him. And it is not the message that he wants to hear. Like Larry very much wants to hear that, like someone is taking care of him, that his actions are going to be affected by God rewarding him. And that is simply not the world in which we live. And and two Uh, different directions there. Like one during, during Cy Abelman's funeral, uh, Rabbi Nochner is sort of like, sort of says like the, the Gorys think there's this idea of heaven. It's a land of milk and honey. We know that that's not what the afterlife is like, um, which I think like lays a good foundation for, you know, uh, not us non-Jews in the audience to be like, ah, okay, great. Good. Like that's important, like mental grounding. Um, but also like it, it, you, you were talking about like what the rabbis are telling Larry and what he doesn't want to hear. I was struck by the fact that they are like, they are, the rabbis are very intentionally in this community playing like the role that like now might also be played by like psychiatrists or any sort of like mental health professionals. Um, Mm -hmm. And this has always been the role of clergy in any, like not in any society, but like, you know, in Western European societies, clergy have very often played this role. So he's going to them, not just for spiritual advice, but just literally practical, like, what should I do? My wife wants to divorce me. (laughs) And, uh, And, and they're giving him non-practical answers, which also doesn't help. Like, he both wants to hear it'll be okay, and also he wants them to tell him what he should do. Yes. And they, A, don't have an answer that will that will say it will be okay, and also don't have an answer that will tell him what to do. Yeah. Um, if, 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 if in a, in a non-spoilery way, what, how did, how did, and, and we can cut this if this doesn't work, but like, what was, what made you think of this with Drive My Car? So Drive My Car is also, um, it is also a movie that kind of deals with, it deals with it more obliquely, like there's no explicit references to like faith or belief, mm-hmm. but it very much deals with, um, how we kind of reconcile the things that happen to us mm. with our place in the world. Like um, the main character has experienced like a lot of grief and death in his life. And he has to figure out how to deal with that and like why it happened mm-hmm. and kind of come to terms with the fact that there's no good answer for it. Like sometimes things just happen and it there's no cause there's no blame just horrible things happen and then we have to deal with what comes after sure um yep you're you saying that i'm just like this movie sounds so up my alley it's so good (laughs) i don't know i truly don't know if marin would enjoy it i'm pretty sure she would hate it it's so Good. Oh. I, I I know. It's such uh, as, a as, what, it what you such, just said, what I you guess, just said, makes me be like, this is even more up my alley, and makes me think she'll enjoy it less and less. <laughs> I, the big thing about it, though, is that it is not nihilistic. Like there are a lot of ways in which I think Serious Man is very nihilistic, and Drive My Car is like the antithesis of that. Hmm. Like hmm. it feels, it feels very deeply. Okay. Um, 
And at like ultimately without spoiling anything, ultimately it kind of it tells you that you're gonna be okay. Kind of no matter what happens. Sure. I, I don't I don't know if I would call a serious man nihilistic. I don't wanna fight that one because I haven't thought through that all the way, but it definitely doesn't tell you that you'll be okay. Uh, it, thought, it, it tells you that I you have some, to make your own way and you better do does. a good job at it. I, th- I think that there's a reading of this movie that is nihilistic. Like there's a reading of this movie that says there is no God and no one cares about you. I don't know that that's the right reading, but I could see somebody making that argument that like everything that happens in this movie is Larry kind of looking for a sign that somebody is watching out for him and going, I don't care about you. My my counter argument there to the argument that I know you're not making, but you're like you're devil's advocating, um, is is the combination of he survives the car crash and Cy doesn't, and then the end being so because it's not just him getting the like the call from the doctor, but then it's like his son is maybe about to get killed in a tornado because <laughs> his son, um, you know, goes back to his sinful ways, as it were. Um, I guess the big question there, and I think. What the question the movie wants us to ask is, would he have gotten the doctor's call if he hadn't changed the grade? Or would he have survived the car crash if he had not been doing the good things earlier? You know, would would he have suffered worse consequences if he wasn't living the life he, he was living? Yeah. So we as the audience, I think, kind of have to decide... I think as a, like how it, much of these, how much of this is coincidence, and how much is like intervention? I guess divine intervention. Uh, and actually, that's an interesting question because I think your reading of this movie changes based on your personal relationship with faith. Maybe like, I would say this. This might... I would I react to this movie differently if I did not have a personal relationship with God. I would say that I don't have a personal relationship with the divine. Like, I'm not an atheist, but I'm also not a theist. Um, but I, I, I walked away with a strong... And this could be, like, a Kuleshov effect situation, but the fact that, like, he changes the grade and instantly gets the phone call, I think we're supposed to interpret that as meaning, like, like that, that takes away the there is no God, we live in a, uh, you know, a dead universe, blah, 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 like, kind of take. Um... Because, like, that is such a clear, like, one-to-one correlation. And you could be like, ah, it's coincidence. But, like, from a filmmaking perspective, that's not a coincidence. Sure. That's an intentional, like... <laughs> sure. Like, if, if you are reading it as, like, coincidence, then you are willfully ignoring the intent of the filmmakers and and the language of cinema. Fair enough. Um, but but it is, it, is, it is certainly not a... It, it's not a war movie. It's not a movie that tells you that, like, you're going to be okay in the end. Um, it's really, it's almost like a call to action movie of like, be, be a good member of society. And don't do it because you expect to be rewarded. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Like you, you need to be a good member because that's the right thing to do. Unlike mm-hmm. the family we're about to talk about. Yes. Oh boy. So speaking of I personal selected... relationships with the divine. Yes. So I selected for our homework today an HBO original show called The Righteous, which was created by Danny McBride and stars John Goodman as Dr. Eli Gemstone, Danny McBride as his oldest son, Jesse, Adam Devine as his youngest son, Kelvin, Edie Patterson as his daughter, Judy, um, Cassidy Freeman as Jesse's wife, Amber, 
Tony Cavallero as Kelvin's best friend, Keith. Gregory Allen Williams as Martin Imari, Dr. Gemstone's kind of right-hand man. Uh, Tim Baltz as BJ, Judy's fiance. And then just a whole bunch of other people, including my personal favorite, especially in the first season, Skylar Gassando as Gideon Gemstone, Jesse's oldest son. Um, this show is about the Gemstones, who are an evangelical power family. Uh, Dr. Eli is a Joel Osteen-type character who runs a series of mega churches in... Uh, I looked up where they're supposed to be. I don't remember... They're not in Texas. Flat, Flatland Midwest. I got a Kansas, Oklahoma kind of vibe, Nebraska vibe, but I couldn't nail it down beyond that. Yeah, in the second season, they actually get more specific about where they are. Um, but yeah, they are a wildly wealthy evangelical Christian family um, with like a whole media network, um, network of churches. Uh, and the show is about this family and how they move through the world. Uh, in the first season, there is a, um, oh God, what even is the, there's a, a blackmail plot that goes horribly wrong um, and results in the the siblings maybe killing a man, question mark, <laughs> um, and how they get out of that. And it's also about, um, that's the first episode. Eli, yeah. <laughs> That's not just the first season. That's the first episode. Um, it's also about Eli. It, so Eli's wife has passed away before the series starts, but it is about him reconnecting with her brother, uh, who becomes a cog in the gemstone machine by taking over one of the churches. Um, and it's about, it's kind of like if Succession was about a religious family. Yes. And also was Although, more more overtly comedic. That's what I was going to say. It is more um, a more straightforward comedy uh, than Succession. Um, so I have now I've seen all that there is to see. The second season just finished airing on HBO recently. But this is your first experience with the show. So what were your thoughts? About the righteous gemstones. Um, I certainly enjoyed it. I mean, Danny McBride is great, and like seeing John Goodman in anything, uh, like you know, have him do anything, and I'm I'm already halfway there. Um, part of me very seriously thought that they should have asked him to host the Oscars in character as Eli Gemstone. I think they should ask him to host the Oscars just in general. That's John great. Goodman because yeah. that would also be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Uh, and that would mean they would have to, uh, uh, set the Oscars in New Orleans. Um, he's, he's a big New Orleans supporter. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was struck by a lot of things going on here. First, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, we, we, neither of us are, are evangelical in any way, shape or form, but I, uh, a couple years ago, I went to a buddy's wedding, uh, who is evangelical, and uh, uh, both Martin and I, me an ex-Catholic, her uh, mostly ex-Lutheran, absolutely struck by the personal relationship angle that that evangelicals have to God. Like, you know, as, as an ex-Catholic, it's like, our Lord and Savior, you don't say his name, and like, you know, it's it, it's a very, like... 
hierarchical sort of relationship with the divine, but also a very, like, removed one. Whereas an evangelical relationship is like, oh, yeah, my best friend Jesus, who I talk to on the regs, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go hit him up on a Sunday afternoon and go talk. Um, it's, it's a very, very different way to interact with the divine. Um, but the other thing, and, and that that's all over this show. Um, but the other thing that I was struck by was the way that those in power use the trappings of Christianity and use, um, like the language of Christianity to reinforce every sort of hierarchy and power dynamic and structure you can imagine. Um, whether it is, uh, uh, just rank patriarchy, whether it's, uh, you know, overseer versus minion, however you want to square it. Um, there's just constant like biblical language and religious language to put people in their place. Um, and on the one hand, people feel way more open with each other in just like laying things on the table. But on the other th hand, it's very there. There's a lot more hiding in the sense, especially between Danny McBride and his wife, which is just like, that's a marriage that on paper looks good. And when you actually think about it for two seconds is uh, worrying. Um, well, related <laughs> to that, if I can jump in, really Yo, please, quick. please do. One of the things that I found very fascinating is how this show deals with women. Yes. Because um, evangelical Christianity is pretty significantly, as you said, it's very patriarchal. It's very misogynistic. Yep. Um, frequently, the, the most that a woman can hope for is being the wife to a powerful man. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a couple of things in the female characters in the show. We see Amber, who is married to Jesse. And I think it becomes very clear as the show progresses that she thinks or thought at one point that she has hitched her star. She has hitched her wagon to a very high climbing star. Yeah. Like her, her marriage to Jesse for her, I think is even more about the power that being married into the gemstone family gives her than it is about necessarily any sort of affection that she has for Jesse. She is able to intentionally divert her gaze up to a point uh because like she has right she just she just can't be humiliated like right. that's where jesse that's where jesse crosses the line i think is like she she i think takes a a line of like if i do not see it then i don't have to deal with it there was a and scene... then jesse is so jesse's really stupid about a lot of things <laughs> um and then in contrast you have judy who I don't think that is enough for like, she is very much like, why can't I, why do I not get all of the opportunities that my brothers get? And the answer is because you exist in a structure that does not value you the same way it does your brothers. Well, And it's really interesting. So I, I only got to the sixth episode of the first season, but that included a flashback episode uh, uh, set in 1989, um, which features Amy Lee, uh, Eli's wife, um, John Goodman's wife, uh, who has since passed during the main timeline. Um, and she has a lot of power and autonomy for a woman. Like um, yes. her, her relationship with John Goodman seems very uh equal or or at least much more equal than any other relationship we see between a man and woman in this in this show um and so it it is interesting to see 
And I don't know enough about the history of it to know if it's a, a situation where, like, in the past 30 years, the the patriarchy and the misogyny have, like, calcified more than they would have in the, in the like, 80s. I'm gonna guess no. But also, maybe it has. Um, maybe it's... I think... I think... And I will I will iterate here that this is based on observation rather than any sort of academic like studying. Yeah. Um, but I think that the further entrenched that evangelical Christianity has gotten with the political right, the mm. more of those things have the more those things have sort of calcified. I think that it is it is a, an example of two puzzle pieces that found each other and are now amplifying each other. Oh yeah. Because I, I think that, like, Christianity has always been pretty rigidly patriarchal, and I think the more involved that has become with the political right, just the worse that it gets. Yeah. Um, I cannot, I, I am not enough of a historian to point to, like, when and how that started happening. I kind of think it's always been an issue that has just become magnified in our current environment reagan very intentionally courted the religious right as part of his political um you know campaign and then doings so like it was it was from the 1980s on the the religious right and the political right becoming closer and closer bedfellows to now being like you know both supporters of rank autocracy uh it has like that has just been amplified, but it it was something that started in the eighties. So the fact that nineteen eighty nine she still has a lot of autonomy, and by the time that it's twenty nineteen or whenever, uh, uh, Judy doesn't does make a lot of sense. Like those thirty years were thirty years of of calcification and um, increasing misogyny and patriarchy. Well, and um, the second season gets more into Eli's personal history. Mm-hmm. Um. And one of the things that I enjoy and appreciate about this show is that the characters, while many of them are terrible people, they are not caricatures. Mm -hmm. They are multi-layered and interesting people. Uh, Interesting from sort of a, like, anthropological standpoint. I don't want to be friends with any of these people. Oh, no, no. Uh, But Eli, the show makes a really strong point to make sure that we understand that Eli truly loved his wife. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that, that's clear from, like, episode one, I think. Like, he is... Yeah. And I think she was a very instrumental piece in how he and his family got to where they are. And there are moments that you will see in other flashback episodes um, that show the points of tension. Like, there are moments when Eli, like, acts without consulting Amy Lee and her reaction to that, or, like, mm. will make decisions without her because that's his place as the head of this church. And you get to see how she feels about that because at the end of the day, even if he truly loves and respects his wife and needs her to be where he is, he is still in charge. Yeah. So I... even, even when you have a couple that acts with more... Uh, equanimity, there is still this inherent power imbalance just by virtue of the fact that they practice within this religious structure. Right. I I also thought it was interesting, thinking of the wider family dynamics, that we see both, like, multiple generations of just messed up families. Like, the kids, like, in the flashback episodes, the young um, 
uh, Jesse and the young Judy are just monsters to each other. And the parents yes. don't really do anything about it. Don't, inter- um, don't interfere. And, that, and, then in, and then in the present, Jesse's kids are mods. Like, you know, they're actually well, kind of fine. But like Jesse and his siblings are still monsters to each other. And Jesse is also a monster to his own children. Oh, he's an absolute monster to his own children. Um, Jesse's a monster just writ large. Um, yeah. and, and there is something to be said in that flashback episode that I saw. M. Emmett Walsh. Uh, always always bringing the thunder uh plays uh eli's father who's you know who i'm getting the vibe of as like a former minister himself and it's kind of like you don't need all this riches you don't need all the gaudiness like you know four walls the good book and the truth that's all you need you're spoiling your kids um and on the one hand that's like a crotchety old man thing to say and on the other hand that's absolutely what's going on in this family (laughs) yeah so the reason that I wanted us, that I wanted, the reason that I picked this show is both because it is absolutely satirizing this lifestyle, but also even though we are meant to laugh at these people, even though we are meant to know that they are horrible, the thing that I think the show is very sensitive about are the people that they are ministering to. Like, Mm. in general, this show does not make a joke out of their congregation. So the people who are participating in um, the sermons, and you see this, I think, especially with Kelvin, who's a youth minister, like the kids that he... that He spending some righteous time hanging out with and dropping some sick truth bombs on. Did you get to the episode where he is asked to basically do an intervention with... Okay, so that episode starts with um, Calvin and Keith, like, being asked to basically host an intervention with a teen daughter of a friend of their dad's. By the way, I love love Keith. Um, Like, I would not want to be friends with him, but he seems like an absolute sweetheart. Well, and here's another one. Like, his whole deal is that he was very he was a satanist and then and you get the you get the impression they don't go into too many specifics but you get the impression that he was in a really bad place yeah before he was saved and that kelvin was instrumental in helping him get out of wherever he was and like legitimately help him find a better life so like keith is a very sensitive soul who will do anything he's an he's an absolute sweetheart um but yeah so this teen girl like it's initially played for laughs. Like they go through her room and they find like her heavy metal music and her and oh no, she's she's in danger. But by the end of the episode, like they go and they they help her get away from like an abusive boyfriend and she finally starts to kind of buy into the fact that they're not just like kind of Christian dweebs, but that she may actually have like there may actually be a benefit to not acting out the way that she is. Yeah, and it's, I, like, like, it's, it, it's a bit of a tough road to, to hoe there, because, like, on the one uh, hand, during the intervention scene, I'm like, this feels like a teenage girl being a normal teenage girl, and she has crazy conservative parents, and that's why. But then by the end, it's like, no, she's going to, like, a party that she is way underage to be at, uh, right. and her boyfriend is an abusive asshole. Bleephole. And like, um, should should her parents have let two strange men go through all of her stuff? Absolutely not. Like, right. that's absurd. 
Um, so I, I feel like the show is playing with this kind of fine line between, yes, the things that they do are outrageous, and yes, a lot of some of what they do is out of line, and yes, Calvin is Calvin is crossing a lot of personal boundaries, but also he does genuinely care about the kids that he is um that are like in his group. It it's he, just a wacky ass way of showing it. Thinking back to a serious man, he absolutely cares. I and I think he does truly care. I I I'm always hit or miss on um Adam Devine, but or Devine. Um but here I, I thought he's he's really good in this. Um I, I I think he he absolutely cares for the kids, but also I think he cares about what that prestige does for him in his. Oh, family. for sure! Like it is definitely a like I can serve two masters here situation. Um, oh yeah, and I I think that if he I I kind of get the feeling that if he were not part of the gemstone family, if he were like a like the son of a small town minister he would maybe not have gone into like youth youth ministry, you know? Um, but because he's I, able to like parlay this through the larger gemstone organization, uh, like he uses it. He, it has become his calling because it is a calling that he can find within the outfit. He's already a part of. Um, and he does respect it as a calling, you know, like he's not, he, he doesn't blow it off. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't, it does feel like it's not, um, like native to him, if that makes sense. I don't know. I disagree only because I think the show makes it clear that it is something he's good at. And working with teens and working with children, if it is not something that you're good at, I don't think you are as successful as he is. That's true. I'm just thinking that if he, if he were not part of the gemstone, you know, family, he might be, you know, a teacher or, or like he might be working with kids through some other mode other than like, you know, youth, youth minister. I mean, I, I, sure. I, 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 I don't yeah. know that I, I don't know that I know. I, I guess I don't know how to argue with that because right. he's a teacher and like the context that I know him in, in this story that he was built to be in totally I, i'm uh, creating a hypothetical and spinning it out into an even greater hypothetical so yes yeah yeah I, I guess i picked this because i think it is easy i think it is easy to say that this level of evangelical christianity is um opportunistic materialistic um, which it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I, 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 the show acknowledges all of that, but it also acknowledges that it is more complicated than that. <laughs> um, sorry, I just ran up a flight of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that the show, I think, walks a line between showing you that these are horrible people who take advantage of their huge audience and platform, um, but that they are not just evil people, except for Jesse. <laughs> I think <laughs> Jesse, I think, is probably the most one-dimensional character um, that we have here. Um, I I don't know if I, I would go so far as to say he's evil so much as he's like 
he's not evil. He's ego. No he's evil. myopically evo egotistical to the point of possibly psychopathy, uh, and is able to wrap it in the Bible. But I also think that the show points out that kind of darkly, like I don't think you get to be as successful in the church as Eli Gemstone is if you are only doing it for material gain, like would you say wherever? that you can't make a tomlet without breaking a few Greg's? <laughs> I truly don't understand the connection but to that line between Well, we were talking earlier about succession. Uh but but more importantly well, yes, I I understood the reference. I, just... I, I really, I just wanted to drop that because, like, the idea is like you have to be ruthless. Um, and we see that in the first episode where where they're gonna like bring the mega church to a new community, which will literally like take the congregation of four successful but small churches. And, oh, yeah, and, like... and Eli's response to those ministers is like, "Yep, sucks to suck. I'm the big fish, so yep. I'm gonna take Eli... your stuff." Eli is opportunistic, he is pretty self-centered, he is narcissistic, and I also truly believe that he truly believes that God talks to him. Yeah, I mean, like, the worst kind of zealot is one who, who is a fully believing zealot, you know? Yes. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about today, and I'm wondering if now I just didn't do enough research to be able to talk about it intelligently, because all I really have to go on is my own personal observations. Um, but I, it's not hard to look up reviews of secular media by people of faith. And I, I think saying people of faith is obliquely referring to Christians. Um, and specifically evangelical Christians. I, I don't know that I can be that specific. Hmm. Um, but I was, I was going to say, like, generally, secular media or media that is not produced by explicitly Christian outlets is seen by christian people as kind of godless and not worthwhile it's why they keep trying to make their own entertainment hubs and why like the christian movie machine like is what it is what's the name of that kid who was on um kirk kirk something is this um the heaven's real God told me so, whatever nonsense. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, it's some movie about, I don't know, a kid who maybe had a near-life death experience or something, and then... The actor Kurt Cameron, who was on Growing Pain, is now a, um... He's an evangelical Christian who, like, runs his own film studio. Yep, yep. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a movie called <laughs> I'm thinking of a movie called Heaven is for Real, um, which is just part of the, as you said, the um, uh, the Christian film complex. Yeah. So like they make their own stuff because secular media is kind of seen to be like, we don't want to engage with this because it's anti. Anti-religion, anti-God, anti. And looking at something like the righteous gemstones like this is very obviously making fun of evangelical christianity but i also think that there is a measure of understanding in it and empathy at least for the people that they are ministering to and who end up being the ones that are taken advantage of by these larger than life um 
creature types. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to read it. I sent you an article back a couple weeks ago by uh, Emily Vanderwerf over at Vox um, about, uh, and we'll post this in the show notes, but um, a headline is, Former Evangelicals Are Putting the American Church Under a Microscope in Pop Culture. Uh, and it's about how there's been sort of an explosion recently of works created by quote-unquote ex-evangelicals. I did not uh, make up that term. That's from the article. Uh, and this includes uh, things like uh, Lucy Dacus's new album, or album from last year, which I would thoroughly recommend. Uh, Righteous Gemstones gets uh, mentioned. Um, I don't know if Danny McBride is from an evangelical background. Uh, his wiki says he's Baptist, but I'm not sure how to read that one. Um... We have The Eyes of Tammy Faye came out this past year. Uh, Amy Adams, I think, is up for the, the nom for that. A couple books are out by former evangelicals, and it's all sort of exploring... Like, exploring the evangelical faith from a... from a former insider's perspective. And I think that's all useful, because up until this point, explorations of evangelical faith have been mostly from non-evangelicals, but also, as you say, people who are deep in, like, those faith communities generally reject outside media as, you know, like, going back to, like, chick tracks from the 80s is, like, you know, everything is the work of the devil, just read the Bible and be good, you know? Um, and and while that's, like, the the maximum hyperbolic extent, it's still... There's still a lot of that DNA in the modern, like, evangelical movement. Like, you know, Harry Potter is the devil. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Which is interesting to bring it back to a man. It's interesting to think about the fact that that is very much about Judaism made by two Jewish men, but is also extremely accessible to people that are outside of that world. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and, and I think does a, like, it is, it assumes a baseline knowledge, like, it, it both assumes a baseline knowledge of, like, Jewish cultures and traditions, like, I don't think at ever, any point do they say explicitly, like, oh, a bar mitzvah, that's when your son does a thing, and then he becomes a man in the eyes of the faith. Uh, but, like, you know, they explain what a get is, they explain, um, you know, they, they lay enough of the groundwork First of all, a lot of it is just, like, interpersonal dynamics, so, like, it doesn't really matter if you know what a get is or not, you know that his wife is asking for a divorce, and that she's definitely having an affair, whether they've slept together or not. Um, and so a lot of it's just, like, the interpersonal dynamics, and then it's like, alright, you go to see the rabbi, or some important faith leader to talk to, cool, I can make that one-to-one -one comparison. Um, and, and so at that point it becomes cultural, not, you know tenets of the faith mm -hmm. and and this too like righteous gemstones it's also like it it's also in a way cultural like i i i personally i do think it's it's i have a harder time squaring the personal relationship to god angle of evangelicalism than the distant uh who cares what god thinks just be a good person uh angle of a serious man like that to me makes way more sense than the like yeah go talk to your buddy jesus uh you know he'll he'll listen <laughs> to your prayers um so like so so that is my bias coming into this but like sure. that angle of it like i don't need to know anything about like 
the creed of of like this mega church you know like it's because it's cult like it's presented to me as a cultural thing of like we will use the trappings of the bible and the language of the bible to to do all of our 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 hierarchy our, our cultural all of like the way that we structure our lives um and and so since i'm like generally familiar with like abrahamic faiths writ large I can get, I can get, uh, like, I can understand what's happening in those sequences. Um, even, even if the specific language is strange to me. Um, and honestly, the specific language was stranger to me in Righteous Gemstones than it was in A Serious Man. Um, there was an ep a, a moment in the first episode I was going to bring up earlier where, um, Jesse's wife sort of puts one of her friends in her place and was like, um... Oh, I, I know the devil just came into you because, like, you, you went and talked back to me. And I know that's not what you would normally do. So uh, I hope the devil gets out of you soon so that we can resume being friends and having our clearly established hierarchy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that last part she didn't say, but that was the inference, you know? And it, it, I was just like, oh, my God, what is going on here? <laughs> um, uh, so, so like, like the language and the way it was used was, was stranger to me. Um, but but it was stranger to me in a way that I'm so like I understand what's going on here, uh, I just don't. It it just boggles my mind. I feel like I took us deep into the weeds there, and I don't know how to pull us back. I was gonna say I kind of don't have anything else to say. Cool. I I don't um, either. So we haven't solved it, but we've enjoyed talking about it for. <laughs> Hmm, religion, an ongoing <laughs> issue in American life. Delicious. <laughs> um Well it it helped that both both of these were very fun watches. Or maybe not fun, but like these are both very enjoyable pieces of homework. Um and they, they went about it in very different ways. Uh before we started recording, it was we were sort of like, they're not really in dialogue with each other. And they aren't, but that's because they're in dialogue with sort of a bigger idea. Yes. Um, I think that is where we're going to leave that one for the moment. We will doubtless return to, uh, I think, the question of how faith interacts with pop culture is big enough that we can always find different aspects of it to shape an episode around. This is at least our third, if not fourth episode on it, so yeah. But yeah, that's where we're going to leave it for today. So our next episode is going to be dropping uh, the Friday before the Academy Awards. It's the 94th Academy Awards. And because I am a witch, apparently, <laughs> I have talked Pete into doing a whole episode that is all about our thoughts, feelings, predictions about the Oscars this year. So that is going to be our next episode. It's not that you're a witch. It's that if you didn't suggest this to be an episode, I would assume that you had been pod personed. Uh. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but until then, if you are looking for more content, you should uh, listen to the other show that I do that drops the same channel on alternating weeks. It is called Love Ya, and I co-host it with Pete's partner, Marin, where we alternate watching a adult rom-com or a teen movie and our next our last episode was on the amazon prime original book of love our next episode is something about summer i don't remember it's a teen summer movie <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, you can follow me on all the places uh, at Magical Martha, including uh, my Tiny Letter, which is at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha, which I update whenever I feel like it, which honestly hasn't been a whole lot lately. But, you, be, you know, you've been busy. <laughs> been busy. Been doing some stuff. <laughs> Uh, Pete, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Um, Watch me on YouTube. I already talked about that in the middle of the show. Yeah, but, you know, plug more, it again. More Oscar stuff. Uh, I'm doing a limited run. I'm doing a limited run YouTube series with friend of the show, Dan Carlin, on his channel, S-O-O-L Radio. Uh, where we talk about each of the Best Picture nominees in detail uh, and also whatever news or BS is coming out of the Academy <laughs> recently. <laughs> you can hear me talk for about seven minutes about how I feel about them deciding not to televise eight of the I, awards. I was about to jokingly ask, what are your thoughts on the fact that they uh, decided not to they tried to do this. Awards. They tried to do this a couple of years ago. It did then it's you, not going to work now. You Steven see, Spielberg is not going to the Oscars <laughs> if they do this. And apparently, I'm glad I, because it's who, BS. Who's broadcasting? Is it ABC? Yeah, it's always ABC. ABC apparently has some contract where they like muscled the Academy into agreeing to this. Uh, ABC was That's like, awful. we won't air the Oscars if you don't let us pre-tape some segments, which is insane. ABC does not understand. This is insanity abc does not understand the people who watch the oscars we go through this every year every year they try some gimmick or cutting something or trimming something tr to make the oscars like leaner and sexier and let's have james franco be the host and let's do all of this it's like no you are never going to get people who don't want to watch the Oscars to watch the Oscars. Yep. And all so you, you should cater, you should cater to the film fan base of film Twitter. Yes, because the only people who are ever going to watch it are the people who wanted to watch it in the first place. So all you're doing when you try to make it more widely appealing is lose your core audience. Yep. Yep. It's it boggles my mind. I don't understand it. It makes me so mad. And also, I'm pretty sure that viewership dropped off so rapidly last year because of COVID. Because we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Any, anyone who's like, Ugh. anyone who uses any metric for 2020 or 2021 for anything is dumb. And yes, should not have correct. a job. Because like, yeah, no... No, duh, no one watched the Oscars in 2021. Three movies came out. Right. <laughs> and because the Academy is so weird about streaming stuff, although they finally seem to be getting over that. Yeah. But yeah, I have lots of thoughts and feelings about that. I think it's BS. I, I, think, the, I think ABC does not understand this thing that they apparently have exclusive airing rights to i think the uh abc's or whomever's in charge of the broadcast like abc's in charge of the broadcast whoever's running the show i think the editors should just do a intentionally piss poor job at editing this show as a specific fu to the fact that editing is one of the categories that's like being pre-taped the cat it's it boggles my mind yeah anyway watch watch the youtube show to get my full more i mean it's basically what i just yelled about for several minutes but you know watch the show anyway and that's sewell radio s-o-o-l radio 
it's either SOL Radio or SOL Media. Searching either one gets you to the same place. Awesome. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000. And you've already asked me that. But I will plug it again. Because uh, we just like... had a good rant about the Oscars. Follow us on social media, DYDYH Podcast. You know where to find us. Leave us a review if you feel like it. I'm so tired, guys. Uh, that's going to do it for us tonight. And this uh, show. <laughs> yes, that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed listening, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismiss. Successfully ended the show with the right outro. <laughs> Booyah! Hooray! I did not say, just remember that we love ya. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs>